You are the great I am, the maker of heaven and earth. All that we do, we do for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we are your church. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm going to ask you now to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And I'll read with you this morning the first ten verses of the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark writes, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they'll faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to them, uh, he set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And then he sent them away. Immediately, or rather, he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Oh, Father, in Jesus' name we praise you for the abundance, for the love and compassion of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So it's a familiar story. There's another one just like it. A couple of chapters before this with a couple of uh, mathematical differences. But these are the great miracles. This is the, the examples of the great abundance of our Lord and how he is concerned for our welfare even in the little things, the necessities of life. And so we read, in those days, the multitude being very great. So we had a very great amount of followers. Friends, when you call something a multitude, today we have another word. We say megachurch. All right? In those days, the megachurch being very great and having nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. Have you ever had compassion on a multitude? I hope you have compassion on... Small amounts of people, (laughs) maybe um, at least individuals, but Jesus has compassion on the multitudes. He sees their need. He says, they've continued with me three days and they have nothing to eat. He kept track. He watched out for them. Now, what a great testimony of the faithfulness of the church, and I want to focus on this a little bit. This is like the infant church coming out to, to... hear the Lord speak, just to hear him speak, maybe to be touched by him or healed by him with a word. But what a great testimony of faithfulness of the church. It might be said that this was the world's first megachurch. 
It should come with some astonishment to us that the multitude that followed Jesus in those early years of his ministry, that to a man, it seems the whole congregation was zealously faithful to him. Mark didn't talk about, well, a few people got bored and went home. They came a great distance. That's obvious in the passage, right? They were far from their homes, thereby far from any provision. I wonder if I would be so faithful as that to continue with him without some guarantee of the necessities of life. You know, some little pub along the way where we could get something to eat. (laughs) You know? You mean we're going to stay here three days? And you know, this could have gone on. If Jesus didn't stop this at that point in time, there's no indication they would have left. You know, I've often said to you um, that if you really, if you thought I was Jesus, you'd never let me out of your sight. I'm glad you don't think that. False doctrine won't get you anywhere. But they knew it was Christ. They knew it was Jesus. They felt the healing. They didn't care what the elites were telling them. They saw it with their own eyes. And I want to develop that point a little bit this morning as well. Wisdom is still uh, around in unsuspecting places. And in this case, the masses knew who they were with, and they were going to stay. They were going to stay till he sent them away. And he sent them away for their own good. (laughs) We're so much more blessed in some ways than they were. In some ways, we've comfortable quarters to worship in. Wasn't always that way. Because we're Puritans, we had to start out in a little ramshackle uh, place on the, on, the, uh, on the pond, right? The camp. I remember we used to invite people to church. We're at Ted Williams' camp, and I remember um, one day a, a couple came, an old friend of mine, Bill Stack, and his wife. He was, a, he was a, a, a pastor. And his wife said, I brought an extra coat. As soon as I heard the word camp, I knew what we were in for. But it was cold there, you know? But today, we're blessed in so many ways. It, the building's a great blessing, isn't it? We have comfortable quarters to worship in, soft seats, padded chairs, right? The Puritans never padded their chairs. They were very hard. You ever sit in Old North Church, you're going to sit like this, straight up, 90-degree angle, um, in a little stall. You couldn't see the other worshipers. You were in this stall. I didn't get that. Waste of wood. But um, we got climate-controlled spaces. It's cool in the summer. It's warm in the winter. Too cold for some, just right for others. We have facilities available. You ever think of that? I think of that every time I see a a war movie with one of those things where, you know, in ancient times and these tens of thousands of warriors are marching for days and days to have a battle. And I'm like, where were the facilities along the way? I always think of those ancillary things, those actual Things. They didn't have that. We have that. So we're blessed with that. We don't even wait for the preaching to get over before we excuse ourselves to the facilities. Nature calls, we answer. I wonder if it ever occurs to us to keep nature waiting in order that we not miss a word of God's word. I wonder if it comes to mind that our interruptions, not just ours, but those around us, just a thought, threw that in there. Things come to me when I'm putting the sermon together. There's food and coffee in the kitchen and the promise of fellowship between friends as soon as the service is over. I feel blessed by all these amenities. I like the amenities. But I wonder sometimes if the multitudes who followed Christ in his day 
did not have a blessing that we don't have. I wonder if privation comes with its own set of blessings and promises fulfilled. It must. Why would you put yourself through that? Can you imagine going out three days, camping out with your family, um, not having brought enough to eat because you didn't know it would go three days. You thought it would probably be a few hours and the concert would be over, right? Get in the parking lot and try to get out early. But no, they went. They didn't know how long it was going to take, and they just stayed. What made them stay? They stayed for a blessing that, that maybe all these amenities cloud us from recognizing. And so as I feel blessed by these amenities, I wonder sometimes if the multitude that followed Christ did not know an even greater blessing than we know. It's called a secret blessing. I wonder if privation comes with its own set of blessings and its own set of promises fulfilled. I wonder if being bereft meaning without, of all the comforts of home could be an enhancement to worship, an enhancement with regard to the sincerity of our worship. We're there just for that, just a thought. It had to be so, don't you think? I'm always amazed at the length to which people of Jesus' time would go just to hear a word for him, just to receive a touch from his hand or to touch his garment. Friends, we're talking about three days, a three-day camping trip for which no one among the multitude spoke up about necessities. Mark didn't say, well, the people were murmuring and clamoring, saying, how long is this going to go on? Are they ever going to feed us? You know, where's the pigs and blankets and the hors d'oeuvres? What's going on? I mean, you don't get any of that. Mark does not give us any hint that those who made up the throng were ready to quit for lack of food. I wonder if they had become, for those few hours of those few days, just like the Lord, in that they had food of which we do not know. They were fed only a steady diet of the Word of God. The spiritual high-protein diet builds you up. Something kept them going. It has been said, man does not live by bread alone. And then it goes on. Jesus said it to the devil, right? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But friends, we all know man does live by bread. We can't go forever. Jesus knew that. And he had compassion on the multitude. It was Jesus who noted the lack. It was Jesus who felt the needs of the people. It was Jesus who called upon the apostles to be cognizant of the necessities of his followers. It was Jesus who felt personally responsible for feeding his own flock. It was Jesus who pulled his forces together in an effort to get the food out to the people. He got the loaves together and said, give it out. It wasn't the apostles, not the multitude, not even a single voice of dissension among them. The children of Israel are depicted often in Scripture as as chronic whiners and complainers and mumblers. If you don't think I'm right, go back to the book of Exodus. And you'll see, they're always murmuring, the Bible tells us. They could learn so much of devotion from the crowd on the hillside that day. I'm quite amazed by it. And I, too, am trying to learn from it. If this were a modern news media item, I would bet that the reporter was keeping certain facts from us so as not to put the movement in a bad light. Color it for his own purposes, right? Bad press could keep people from following after him and prospering the ministry. Jesus could have been there censoring. Don't write that. Don't say that. We don't get that at all. But from a biblical biblical perspective, 
We just don't see that happening. You know, the Bible is the most reliable source in history precisely because of its clear-eyed objectivity and brutal honesty. The Bible doesn't keep back the bad stuff about its heroes. It tells us everything. Remember, the Bible's the historical source that does not leave out the shortcomings of its heroes. And I say heroes in the literary sense, right? Abraham, he loses patience with the promises of God after a long time, right? And so what does he do? He conceives his own carnal plan to bring it about. Well, God said I should have a son. I've I've waited awful, awful long. It hasn't happened. Sarah's barren. I know what we'll do. Well, Sarah actually came up with the plan, but he went for it, right? He signed it into law. And so she came up with it. Take the servant girl. Get a son through him, and he did. Do you know Ishmael was 13 years older than Isaac, if memory serves? Memory may not serve, so go back and and look that up. But I, I think he's quite a bit older than Isaac. So he still waited and waited. And Ishmael became the the favored son. Why wouldn't he? So he marries the servant, conceives a son, when the promise was that his wife Sarah would conceive. Remember Moses, friends. Moses is put in a really good light all throughout Scripture. But due to his own sinful anger and frustration, he was kept out of the promised land as a punishment. And what of David, who even after he received every blessing of promise, from the Lord. He received his prosperity. He received, uh, he gained the kingdom. He reveled that he defeated his enemies. So he had all these things, and then he celebrated by satiating his momentary lust instead of doing his duty. Sometimes it doesn't pay to be too happy because, because we celebrate in ways that don't please the Lord. I've had to say that to people over the years. Peter denied him. John and James selfishly vied for primacy among the twelve. Remember? Their mother came to Jesus and said, "Um, can my boys sit on your right and left? Forget these other ten, but can I put my boys up there? You remember that. Jesus' own family, including his mother, forgot about his deity and went for a time in unbelief. They even opposed him at Nazareth, it seems. And what of the Baptist? Even John the Baptist, not not a greater man than he has ever opened the womb of woman in the earth, Jesus said, but even he had some doubts in the end. It was revealed to him before he was born who Jesus was and still had to send disciples finally and say, are you the one we to look for or shall we look for another? And I wonder if even John, even John in prison was receiving these media reports that Jesus was drinking and eating too much with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the like. I wonder if it finally got to John. He thought, could this really be him? My ministry wasn't like that. I didn't do those things. All this to say that I'm quite comfortable in the belief that if Mark had something bad to report, he would have done so. Brutal honesty has been the demonstrable standard of the prophets from the beginning. No, friends, the church, the multitude, was honoring God, giving their all, giving up even the necessities of life, for something, some secret blessing that we can talk about, but I wonder if we've ever felt it for ourselves. Verse 3, And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So some came a long way. I imagine he's going from one place to the other, and people are gathering up. The fame of Christ went throughout the land. This was, this was a land that didn't have newspapers, friends. They had, a, they had another media source. It was called gossip. And it went fast 
it moved at lightning speed. You know, faster than it takes for you to turn on your computer and before it comes up, the story would have already gone out in ancient Israel. With every wicked artifice of their own, the Pharisees tried to blemish the Savior's reputation, but they didn't care. It's he who loves the multitudes, and they knew it because they witnessed it. It's he who feels their pain. It's he who considers their frame and knows that they are dust, the psalmist wrote. Matthew Henry commented on this too. He said, those that followed him underwent a great deal of difficulty in following him. It wasn't easy. They took up their cross and followed him. And I, I've got to wonder if he said, this is only going to go on for three more days. I wonder, would they still have been there just to hear the word of God from Christ Jesus himself? So Henry writes, they were with him three days and had nothing to eat. That was hard service. Never let the Pharisees say that Christ's disciples do not fast. They didn't proclaim a fast, they just fasted to be near him. We've seen how the powers that be in the, that politically charged moment in history used all their influence to diminish the reputation of Jesus. I hope you'll see a contemporary application in this. If not, I'm here to tell you what to look for. The simple honesty of common people translated into greater wisdoms despite all the schooling and training they received from the political elite. They saw something different than what the experts were telling them. The man on the street was wiser than the rulers of the temple. Now, how can that be? They saw the Lord's mercy. They felt his healing touch. Remember Bartimaeus? They said, who healed you? As though it was a bad thing, right? Who made him see? He was blind. The blind man of Jericho, we call him, right? Who healed you? And he said, he healed a man born blind that's never been done, and you don't know who he is. Jesus would have said, like he said to Nicodemus, you're the teachers of Israel, and you don't know these things? That's how I feel a lot. Remember, a wise man once said, a sure sign of mass confusion is a growing number of experts. Very, very wise man said that. Um, They felt his healing touch. They heard the wisdom of his words. And all the while, his opponents were defaming him. The simple, honest observations of common folk trumped the false display of wisdom in high places. What do the elites say? The people, you know, the ones that are smarter than us, what do they say? Don't believe what you see. Believe what I tell you that you're seeing. You hear it all the time. No, this is what's really going on. There's a fire burning behind me in one of our great cities. And I'm on the microphone saying this is a peaceful demonstration. Well, mostly peaceful. He has a demon, they said. He casts out demons by the spirit of demons. But the ones out of whom the demons were cast, they knew what happened. The friends and relatives of those who were freed from demonic spirits knew. The lepers who were healed knew better than the elites who simply would not see. The blind who received their sight had more sight while they were blind than the opponents of Christ had with their seeing eyes. They knew when they were blind who he was. Blind Bartimaeus recognized the deity of Christ that the religious elite remained willfully blind to. Privation and lack sometimes unclouds our spiritual insights. And some of you who have suffered have found that out. 
Sometimes the blessings we revel in all around us become the clutter that crowds out our real needs. The need to be near him. There's a need. The need to hear him speak. The crowd on the hillside experienced the unclothed blessings of naked, unadorned faith in Christ. They had him, and he was all they needed, and they knew it. And so they did not clamor for anything else. I almost wonder if they were under this, for lack of a better word, this spell, spiritual connection with Christ. I wonder if they even said, I hope this never ends. Food? What's that? Almost forgotten about that. And then there was this simple love of the Savior. This simple, sincere concern for their welfare and safety and sustenance and prosperity. If I send them away hungry, he said, they'll faint on the way. Lord knew all about blood sugar and um, insulin and all those things. So the Lord has gathered a faithful army. He's gathered a faithful army. And any good captain of men knows that the army must be fed if they're to fight another day. And so he thought, they followed me far beyond their access to amenities. Friends, the captain had to preserve the troops. Do you know that George Washington, you know, the guy that won the American Revolution, do you know that he retreated more than he attacked? Far more. He ran away with his army so many times so they wouldn't be defeated in battle when he knew the forces were too great against him, and he only attacked when he knew he had the forces to do it. (laughs) uh, Nathaniel Philbrook's book, The Genius of George Washington, it's an awesome application to this you got to preserve the troops you got to feed them and and uh with washington and you got to pay them congress didn't want to pay them but i digress so he thought they followed me far beyond their access to amenities they came out many miles in my travels with me they probably packed provisions for the trip but by now they're either exhausted or spoiled they didn't have little igloo coolers you know, and even if they did, three days, I don't think cool would keep it cold three days, would it? And so Jesus thought, I'm responsible to them. I'm not going to disappoint them. And so he calls upon his closest disciples to facilitate the feeding of the masses. He calls the twelve together. All our lives, the Lord will call upon us to do the same. All our lives, we may find our God-given task to be just as impossible as this one was. Sometimes the things he tells us to do are impossible. So what do we do? We do them. Because with God, all things are possible. The disciples knew it was impossible. He asked of them the impossible. He asks it of us each day. We think, oh, he'll never receive the gospel from me. You know? I've been on this thing where I I just give the gospel to to everyone. Yesterday, Karen was dealing with uh, one of our bankers. I think it was the church bank, Dwayne, and and she was, you know, they have to talk to me to give permission to talk to her. You know how that works? Because she's not the signer. You know, you could have this guy come in the house and say, just say you're Dan, you know. But, uh, but they allow that, you know. And um, so when he said, um, so are you the uh, I said, yeah, I'm Dan Kassir, I'm the signer. I'm also the pastor of the church. His services are at 10. And I really wish you'd come out. And he actually started talking about it with me, like he might do it. Don't see him. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so he asks the impossible of his disciples. Sometimes he does that. His disciples answered him, 
How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he said, well, how many loaves do you have? At least we can count them. You know, they must have thought, seven loaves? This is going to be a rush. You know, people will get trampled coming after the loaves. Seven loaves. Now, let me point out that one of the reasons I love Mark's gospel so much is his commitment to chronology. Mark goes from one thing to the next in time. All right? Not all the Gospels do that. Not uh, every other Gospel is concerned with the order of events as Mark is. So let's go back a couple of chapters and recall another passage which says something that you would think they might have remembered. You know, remember in the Scriptures, a couple of, pass- a couple of uh, pages back could be a couple of years back. But he said, When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. The hour is late. In other words, they were there one day. Because they're talking in hours, not days. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. One day. Right? But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And then he said this, how many loaves do you have? Friends, how many loaves do you have? You know what? I'll tell you right now how many loaves. You have more than you need. You have enough to share. You have loaves that could be multiplied by faith to needy people. That's how many loaves you have. And then we read, Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000. So in other words, it happened all before. Just two chapters ago. And still they doubt. Now I know this syndrome, this doubt syndrome. I'm not down on the apostles for, for doubting. I'm well aware of this frail human tendency to doubt the Lord's will and his ability to bless. You ever try to lessen um, the hurdle for the Lord? Well, I, I don't pray for that big thing. Just give me this much. That's all I want. And then you, you figure, well, I'm not asking for much. He'll give me this. It's almost as though he's not willing to overabundantly bless you, and everything I see is that he is. But I know the syndrome. I'm well aware of that. Frail human tendency to doubt the Lord's will and ability to bless. Even though my entire life has been a rich history of one answered prayer after the other, even before I knew him. And my first great answer to prayer before I knew him sits in the front row of the church. I'll let you figure that out. But even though step by step through my life, and step by step in your life, and I've seen it, he's blessed you beyond what you could ask or think, and I still fret that the next blessing might not come in time. I wake up at night and say, what if that doesn't happen? But let me just turn my thoughts to God's grace and focus on God's grace. There was a story Pastor Ken used to tell. Everyone in church knew the story. (laughs) Pastor Ken told things many times, um, as I do. And he had... He and his father had this, uh, this business in Lakeville. It was his mink farm. Did you know about the mink farm? Yeah, he had the minks. He sold minks, a lot of money in minks, right? It's expensive to have a mink coat, right? All of a sudden, the market fell out of the mink farm. That can happen. Now you get all these rats. They're not minks anymore. They lost everything. And he said, I was walking right over by where I live. That's where the mink farm was. And... Um, He said, I was walking through the fields and the woods and saying, Lord, I have to speak tonight. What am I going to tell him? (laughs) And Ken always said, and the Lord said to me, I guess you're not going to talk about you. (laughs) In other words, you're going to talk about me, right? 
Not, not much good to say about you, but I'm still the same yesterday and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. And guess what? It turned out all right, Pastor Ken. He was blessed with great abundance, and he was blessed as one of the most generous people of my Christian life, personally. So even though my life's been blessed, I still wonder, where's that next blessing going to come from? Did God forget about that? I mean, he brought me this far. I'm in the wilderness now. There's nothing to eat. But he got me here. I came for the right reasons. I'm a good and faithful worshiper of God. But I wonder if he's forgotten this time. And I'm not so vehement as some with regard to blaming those disciples because I see it. I see it in myself. The Lord who brought us this far will by no means leave us to ourselves in our hour of greatest need. And we have these two passages to teach us this principle. And yet, in our flesh, we still find so many reasons to fear and to doubt his will and to be just like those apostles. The first, I'm calling it the dichotomous principle of prayer, is this. You've got to ask God for things, but you already know that he knows what you're going to ask. Right? We're told that in the asking, we should know that he knows our need before we ask. And so it's written. When you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do. In other words, a prayer is not a rehearsed incantation, hoping for a magic spell. And it isn't a rosary, where you say the same thing over and over and over ad nauseum to the wrong God. All right? For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Friends, you can give just a sincere prayer with few words. Edit your prayers. Make them short. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. That's obvious. Jesus was the one that saw their need. They weren't crying out. I just find that an amazing relationship. So I've come of late to trust the simple observations of the masses and to doubt the greater wisdom of the experts. If ever there was a time or a place in history where common wisdom Trump's credentialed wisdom, it is our time. The man on the street cannot be told that a man is a woman or a woman is a man by choice. I know. I have that conversation all the time. Right? I do at the grocery store or somewhere where I have to sign or someone calls me Mr. Kasiri. I say, no, I prefer Mrs. I identify as a woman. And what do you think they do? They laugh. They laugh because they know how ridiculous it is. But what if it was true? What if it was true and I filmed it, I could have them canceled out of the culture for laughing at that. But the guy in the street knows. He knows it's a joke. It has to be. No one could believe it. Now, I know people are confused, and I have my sympathies for those things. But when they come to me, I don't say, well, what do you feel like today? Well, then that's what you are. And then call that compassion, right? It's like the little woman that comes into the psychiatrist's office and she's 31 years old and five foot six and and 78 pounds and she comes in and, and he says why are you so frail and so thin and she says well it's be i won't eat and why won't you eat she says because i'm fat so should he at that point say do you identify as fat well then you're all you're all set i can't i can't say anything else or does he say for her own good you're mistaken well you need to get your thinking straight That's what you're here for. You're here to get your thinking straight about your personal image and the things you desire because if you don't eat, you you are dying. Your organs are starving. You don't let her identify as something she's not because it's evil and cruel to do that. The man on the street knows that. The elites, 
in the media centers of the world, they can't know it for some reason. So I trust the simple observation of the masses, and I doubt the so-called greater wisdom of the expert. Something or someone has determined the sexual identity of every person without consulting the person themselves. And everyone knows that. So I think the common man knows that people of every race and creed deserves the same respect. I think we know that instinctively. Of course there are always people who don't get it, people who for reasons of their own are hateful. But I think the common man knows that everyone deserves the same respect. That's what I witness when I look at America. I think the, the, the man on the street knows that. I think people, if polled, would come up with the right answers to these kinds of things, yet the academic elite of our day will tell us to mistrust our own eyes and to trust their interpretations of what we all our lives believed and saw clearly and see clearly. And we have to be those who proclaim it clearly. Surely the man on the street can see that to borrow great sums of money puts the borrower in a, borrower in a tough place. You're in jeopardy. You just can't do that forever. The guy in the street has to know that. The simple wisdom of Proverbs says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. So you want to be a slave? Just borrow too much. We live in a time when the political elite see borrowed money as wealth, printed money as gold, and easy money as the ultimate good. And even though today's political elite may have read the room rightly with regard to how the common man will receive government gifts, it's like the drug dealer who gives free samples of his product in order that the recipient will become addicted and a perpetual customer. Who would not succumb to the temptation to vote for free money for themselves? We would all think, if I don't take it, someone else will. And so whole societies are led down a path that can't possibly end well because the experts tell us something that we know is false and we knew it when we started out. It seems to me the man or the mother on the street can see the folly in the elites of our society designing what things our children will learn in their schools. Once the eyes of the masses are opened, politics takes a back seat to our children's spiritual and intellectual welfare. Once their eyes are opened, once they realize media sources have lied to them, when politics becomes too intrusive into our personal lives and invades our personal hopes and dreams and mission for our children's welfare, the wisdom of the common people overflows into the political arena. And they say, we won't be led by you. You're too stupid to lead. Maybe our national deficit of right thinking that I have always thought was the curse of God, of Romans 1. Perhaps it was just an information deficit. You know, there's an old adage in the computer world. You've heard it? Garbage in, garbage out. Right? You know what I'm talking about. About programming. Put the right thing in, the right thing will come out. Wrong thing in, bad stuff comes out. Put the right information in people, and there's an innate sort of clear-eyed wisdom that's still out there. And I pray, and that's what we pray about on Friday afternoons. We pray that the nation will open their eyes and see things again. Even the truth of Scripture. Perhaps it's an information deficit. The political elite and our elite media can only keep the masses in the dark so long and walking in step so long and voting against their own self-interests for so long. But once the curtain of lies and deception is lifted and the masses see objective reality for what it is, simple wisdom fills the void. Ask the man on the street, maybe we really do need law enforcement. Maybe we do need 
to get back to math and science and leave some of this other stuff for other people. The Pharisees are the political elite of their day, and their mission was to hide, to besmirch, to ridicule the person and purposes of Jesus Christ. But when the masses heard him directly, they rightly addressed the situation for themselves. When the masses witnessed his love and compassion and provision for themselves and saw that it was he, after all, who cared most sincerely for their souls and their bodies, they could not be dissuaded by mud-slinging Pharisees. They knew who he was. So they became the committed multitude we have from our text. But who could have predicted that the masses would willfully deprive themselves of personal comfort for the greater good of being close to their Redeemer. Who would have thought they would have done that, even for the three days? True faith makes little of hardship. A full feast for the soul may satisfy the hunger of the body, seems to me. And it seems that in the end, the Savior is faithful to reward those who strive hard and labor long with him, and he recognizes that they have done that. And they'll not go away from him empty-handed, As the psalmist wrote, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. I believe that. He won't forget us. You know, in a trial, and I've had my trials, I'm always determined not to doubt the Lord's provision in the trial. I say that at the beginning. And it gets longer than I thought it would be. He has a way of prolonging a trial until I finally doubt. I was determined not to, but who knew it would go on this long? I remember being on my knees going, how long, oh Lord, how long? (laughs) You know my commitment is to trust. I can commit to not proceeding until the Lord blesses me or reveals a path forward. But in each succeeding case, the wait may get longer and longer. And then, like Abraham, I think it's time for me to act. I've always said that most people give up on faith just before they're blessed. And you know what? We have people... See, this is where the church is so important in our lives because we have people there to counsel us and say, I know you think your trial's long, but it's not. It's momentary. And I'm not making light of trial, but on the end of it is a blessing. Always. And so the disciples ask, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? There are a few great lessons here that we shouldn't miss, all right? First, residual doubt in a believer is sometimes made to work for magnifying the power of God. When you've doubted it in the first place and then it happens, it's even more stupendous in your sight, right? It multiplies the efficacy of a miracle of provision. Who knew he could bless like this? Yeah, I knew he could bless. I vaguely remember the 5,000. But this is different. And we've been here three days, not one. And we're hungrier than we were then. And so there's a second lesson here too. The bounty of Christ is inexhaustible. God doesn't run out, you know? He doesn't run out of blessings. (laughs) From chapter 6, where Christ fed the 5,000, it came from five loaves. Now do the math with me. The 4,000 are fed with seven loaves. Something's off. I'm a numerologist. I want this to work out. Imagine all the numerologists going, how can that be? Seven's the magic number. (laughs) Um, The math is off, but the lesson is to use up whatever things are in our hands in order that we may see the glory of God in his bountiful provision. Because the thing that's in our hands, he put in our hand. Moses said, how will Pharaoh believe me? He says, well, what do you have in your hand? He said, a stick. Then use the stick. Throw it down, it became a 
What, a cobra? They do the cobra in the movies. I think it just says serpent in the Bible, but let's go with cobra. Um, the first case, in the first case, they took up 12 baskets full of fragments. In this example, they took up seven baskets of leftovers. But in both incidents, God multiplied the resources to meet the present need, and that should be enough assurance that his, of his power and his goodwill. Remember the manna in the wilderness? Do you remember the manna? It came from heaven. It fell on the ground. It was like a, a porridge. It was like sweet, like honey. Remember they described the manna? I always picture it like, um, like a hot cereal type thing that fell on the ground. You could pick it up and some, it wouldn't have dirt on it. <laughs> but um, what did it say? So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. In other words, he's blessing you with sustenance. But you can't gather it up for the next day and sell it to your neighbors and make a profit. You know, the Israelites were thinking that already. Let's get out early, get all the manna, we'll sell it to the rest of them. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And they were blessed. And you know, as you read through the Old Testament, it's very strange. All of a sudden, they're not talking about manna. And you go through the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? And no more mention of the manna. Then you get to Joshua, and they cross over. The Jordan, right? And it says, and the manna ceased. And you, oh yeah, the manna. All these years they've been eating manna. Forgot about it. And the manna ceased. So the writers didn't tell you, but there it was. It was coming down from heaven all that time. And then it just ceased one day. And they're like, oh, we better go hunting. <laughs> Verse 6, so he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. He broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before them and they set them before the multitudes. So he delegated the feeding. It was his idea, right? It was his provision, and he delegated the feeding. But there's at least two more lessons that I want us to pick out of this text. The first is that gratitude precedes abundance. Have you ever noticed that? Gratitude precedes abundance. He took the seven loaves and gave thanks. He gave thanks. I mean, he knew seven loaves couldn't feed 4,000 people. I mean, he knew that, right? Everyone knew it. The disciples knew it. But he gave thanks for what he had. The people were in the presence of the Lord. And so among all the people of the earth, they are by definition the most blessed. They're already the most blessed because they're right there with Jesus. There was no great outcry for provision. They didn't pull a prayer meeting together. Oh, Lord, we perish for lack of hunger, lack of food. No complaint that they were in lack. So far as we can tell, the text, uh, from the text rather, the disciples did not complain. They rather rejoiced in their condition. They had fasted, some of them, for three days. Others probably had some provision. You know how it works, right? And yet they would be blessed with the simple necessities of life and rewarded by food and the experience of yet another miraculous encounter in their wilderness trek with the Lord. Can you imagine? I mean, I wonder who first saw what was happening. They took the seven loaves. of the, There's 12 disciples, there's seven loaves. If they're going to hand it out, they had to break a couple of them up, right? Can you imagine them handing it out like, <laughs> how am I going to do this? And the baskets must have just kept overflowing. Imagine witnessing that for the second time. And like, oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot. Note this though. 
Jesus did not plead with God to increase their provision. There was no long prayer of pleading for mercy and for food, of trying to convince God of our great need. Do you ever do that in prayer? Lord, you don't understand. It's really great this time. He didn't do that. He did not invoke the power of God or plead with God for his mercy. He didn't do anything. It says he gave thanks. That's all we see the Savior do, is give thanks for the little that he had. And the thanks he gave was in the moment of need and not after the fact of the heavenly provision. I'll bet the people were thanking God after that, though. I bet they were saying, did you see that? The people up front, right? He's not blind to the devotion that his beloved was showing him that day. So he blessed him for it. Gratitude, friends, is the response of a creature who recognizes his own depravity. Why would I say that? Because you know you're undeserving. You're therefore grateful for any blessing. The lack that you have now. Enumerate the things you have in your need that you don't need. You still have your eyesight. Have you ever thought about that? You still have your eyesight. You still have your health. Your ability to walk and work and converse. There's so many things that we have right now. We have our families among us. We have the place to worship in. And for them, they had the same thing. They were out there with their families. People traveled with families back then. They didn't say, oh, let's get someone to watch the kids and we'll go see Jesus. (laughs) I don't know, this babysitter's charge a lot today. Let's take them with us. Oh, but there's such a pain. He gave thanks, and the provision increased. He didn't plead, oh, Lord, take these loaves and multiply them by your mighty power. He just gave thanks. Gratitude's the response of a creature that knows he doesn't deserve anything. A person of faith knows he's undeserving. Yes, Tucker, he's born in sin. Um, He knows that every blessing he has is from God, and he's aware that the simple things of life, the things already in his hand, are evidence of the mercy of God. It's all around him. These are the tokens of God's existence in his life. And though he may have great needs, and though he may have great desires, he is yet content with what he has, because he knows it's all a gift from God. And when the unbeliever finally goes before God and says, I was not blessed in this life, he's going to say, well, I don't know. I sent my rain on the just and on the unjust. I sent my sunshine on the evil and on the good. No, you were blessed just like everyone else. Same blessing, same opportunity. And so when we're content with what we have, we show gratitude for it. And the Lord's pleased to multiply it. So Paul writes of this very thing. And so he writes, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work as it is written. He has dispersed abroad. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything. For all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. Thanksgiving 
flows out of the body of Christ. It is who we are. We're a thankful church. We have a Savior who feeds us. We have a Savior who bleeds with us and died for us. Verse 9. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Can you imagine the media back then? There was 100 people. This is the infant church worshiping their Lord and sharing all things in common among themselves. It seems to me that my 30 plus years in the faith that evangelicals have stressed the importance of individual conversion and not stressed enough the power and purpose of the corporate movement of the church. Friends, remember one simple rule. There's no Christianity without the church. The church is God's body. The body of Christ, Paul calls it. The church is an army that moves together toward a common goal. And I hope that we all know that apart from the church, there's no Christianity. We are a corporate movement. Invite people in. Invite them in. And they'll hear the word of God in here. And they'll get saved. Some. The church, friends, is the body of Christ. Paul calls it the bride of Christ. He calls it the household of God. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this very thing where we read, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he's not talking to a nation. He's talking to the church. The church is a holy nation. You are his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God. We're a corporate movement. We once weren't a people, but he pulled us together as his body and called us the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Friends, we have a corporate purpose. We have a corporate prayer. We have corporate blessing. And I often say, you remember when the Holy Spirit fell upon the saints that day at Pentecost. There was 120 of them in the upper room, remember? Imagine the ones that didn't come. Imagine the ones that said, well, I bought an, uh, an ox and I have to test him. Or I bought a piece of land or I married a wife, <clears throat> right? Or, um, you know, my, um, my uh, neighbor's son's birthday party. I had to go to that. Birthday parties are like, people will give up everything for a birthday party. I mean, the, the excuse, can you imagine? Well, I had to go to the birthday party. So what happened at the uh, prayer meeting? The Holy Spirit came in as the sound of a rushing mighty wind. Fire was on our heads. Yeah, right. Well, we lit candles and blew them out. I mean, you couldn't even tell the person. I think I'll end on that. (laughs) Our Father, we thank you for the word revealed to us. We thank you for the word proclaimed. We thank you for the body of Christ. And there is no body without a Savior who provides all things for us. From the hand of God. Amen.